The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP aims to improve the quality of reporting on Africa-China relations through reporting grants, workshops, and other opportunities for journalists. More information at africachinareporting.co.za and our dedicated training website at africachinatraining.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Syndicate Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, it has been a week now since the end of FOCAC, and what usually happens in the two, three, four-week time period after FOCAC is we start to see the really good analysis that starts to come out. And it is, in fact, starting to trickle out. We've been showcasing quite a bit of it on our website over the past couple of days. Some great reporting coming out of the team at Development Reimagined. Uh, They wrote, for example, that the overall direction of Africa-China relations is intensification rather than a cooling. And they are trying to challenge one of the key narratives that emerged from FOCAC that China is backing away from Africa because of the fact that in the Xi Jinping speech, he only outlined $40 billion of financial pledges. Now, that has been a big point of contention with a lot of people looking at China's engagement in Africa because they're saying, well, look, in previous FOCACs, they were giving $60 billion, and this time they're only giving $40 billion, so that shows that China's backing away. In fact, there's just been some terrible, terrible takes. We've been calling these the bad takes. I've been writing about them in the newsletter, where people are saying that, well, China is not giving as much money because it's worried about its own economy collapsing. That was one tape, and you're just like, the $20 billion difference between 60 and $40 billion is not going to make enough of a difference to save a $14.72 trillion economy. So bad take right there. Another bad take was the fact that there's so many bad loans in Africa that the Chinese economy, again, is on the verge, and this is the word they used, of collapse. And you're just like, Ugh, awkward. Uh, $150 billion of lending over a 20-year period again will not have a meaningful impact on a $14.72 trillion economy. So those are some of the bad takes. Some of the good takes are the fact that uh, David Monnier, our friend at the Center for Africa-China Studies at the University of Johannesburg, he pointed out the fact that over the last 20 years, there have been a number of uh, white papers from China on African engagement, but there have been no white papers from African governments towards China. That was one of the interesting points that he brought out. So anyway, Kobus... It's starting to kind of settle down a little bit. We're getting more details on the numbers. The key issue, of course, and this is the most important thing, how are the Chinese going to price the 1 billion vaccine donation? Well, 600 million of those at least are donations, and that will then really help to flesh out the total value of the package. Now, again, is the value of the package really important? Well, it is in terms of optics, and a lot of people are attaching a lot of weight to this number, and it looks like in some respects... The Chinese really did mishandle 
this headline because a lot of the coverage has been about this 40 billion number and not about all the other things that China seems to be doing. I think it's a really good point. The the the, the complicating issue is that during the speech, she main, main, mentioned um, many, many different kind of projects and initiatives that's going to be happening, many of which didn't have, have price tags attached. So, you know, so that I think complicated the, the relationship a lot or the, 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 the issue a lot. The other issue I think that 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 I'm very interested in is is this this pledge to increase um, Africa-China trade to 300 billion dollars um, by 2024. Um, and it's you know kind of they, they they mentioned some basic stuff like you know they seem to be focusing a lot on, on agricultural trade, but I you know kind of it's it's very interesting to see how that would be, you know kind of how they're going to be reaching that number like what what kind of trade are we talking about particularly because it's it's essentially basically a doubling almost more than a doubling um, of of current trade levels um, you know so so I think there is it's quite intriguing but at the moment it's still very kind of low information situation. And that, that specific $300 billion number was of African exports. So how are they going to increase the value of African exports? Because it's not going to come in the form of tea leaves from Kenya or coffee from Ethiopia. There's going to have to be either high-value commodities like oil or cobalt, or it's going to have to be some sort of manufactured good or products that have value added to them in Africa prior to export. But let's stay on this question of trade today and get a perspective on the ground from China. We always love to have conversations with our good friend Walter Regu, who's the managing director of Camel, which is an international trading and sourcing company that does a lot of business from China in Southeast Asia, Africa, and the Middle East. We've spoken to Walter many times over the years, and I wanted to make sure we speak to him before the end of the year to get his take both on on FOCAC and also on the conditions on the ground in China. Walter, a very good evening to you, and thanks so much for joining us again on the show. Yes, thanks for having me. Well, let's start with FOCAC, since that was where we began the program. Before we get into the details of what are your clients telling you, what is the kind of stuff that you're actually putting in containers, and we also want to talk to you about some of these supply chain questions that may be complicating your business, but give us your take on FOCAC. How much attention did you, your colleagues, and some of your clients pay to what was going on in Dakar? And if not, why not? Yeah, I think the first thing is uh, in 2018, when the FOCAC was here in Beijing, we were actually looking, we were very looking forward to the FOCAC in Dakar. But as you know now, because of COVID, uh, the travel became quite impossible. So that has reduced uh, quite the amount of attention that has been placed on, on FOCAC. And also, um, FOCAC, I think, is a very good platform for high-level discussion between states and state companies. So for, you know, for medium-sized, small companies, uh, even private companies, uh, FOCAC uh, still has a lot of work to be done to integrate uh, these kind of companies into the discussion. So, yes, we follow it. We saw the pledges that were made. But from a private sector point of view, FOCAC still remains quite a, a distance from, from our, our daily work. That's a very interesting point. Um, you know, FOCAC itself this year was, was focusing a lot on, on trying to strengthen those ties, actually. And um, so, so from your perspective, what, what should a, a body like FOCAC um, do to, to, to be more relevant to, to, you know, kind of to, to the private sector? First of all, I think FOCAC has 
transformed a lot. Uh, the first FOCAC I ever attended was in 2012 and also it was here in Beijing. That FOCAC and the FOCAC this year, they're completely two different things. And one of the major changes was that if you look at the FOCAC this year, it was focused on things such as capacity building, you know, people to people exchange, peace and security, uh, investment. So these kind of things, they were not really very present in 2012. So the program itself is shifting, but because of the nature of how it's organized and, and the people who run it, it's still very state-to-state -state driven. So hopefully in future FOCACs, which, which will be more open and you know, hopefully you know, people can attend and the private sector can attend, and you know, not only the African private sector, but also the Chinese private sector, I think this will do a lot to help the, the, the trade, the economic discussion, and also bring in the private sector. But this year, of course, because of COVID, that has also caused a big problem uh, in terms of engaging the private sector. Well, let's talk about your business and how business is going and what your clients are telling you about the state of the economy. Again, it'd be interesting also to get your perspective on how Africa compares to your business in the Middle East and even now here in parts of Southeast Asia where you're doing trade logistics. Okay, what we're hearing from the outside in is that the Chinese economy is facing some serious headwinds. In fact, uh, just this week, the Chinese Politburo approved a new package of measures to jumpstart the economy in a bid particularly to ease the pressure on the faltering real estate market. There's a lot of pressure in China in terms of growth. The economy has slowed both because of the ongoing pandemic, but also because China's economy is just maturing to the point where the days of 6, 8, 9, 10% growth that it experienced over 20, 30, 40 years is coming to an end. So you're you're there at this point of transition. You've also been there throughout the, the pandemic, and you've seen the factories open and close. You've seen the ports open and close. You've seen the access to containers ebb and flow. Give us a sense as to where the Chinese economy is right now and what the factory situation is vis-a-vis -vis your own business. Yeah, I think the first thing is, uh, it's not only about where the Chinese economy is. I think the first question is, where is the global economy, right? Which economy in this world is doing well at the moment, right? And there's really not many economies that are performing well. You know, this year and the past year has been something that has not been seen in our lifetimes, right? So actually, I think a better question is, what are we not seeing? Because, you know, on one side, we have bankruptcies, we have delayed cargo, we have, you know, logistical issues. But on the other side, we do have resilience and muddling through and, you know, reshoring and new sourcing hubs and improvising in logistics. So this year, there is a lot of things that are happening at the same time. And sometimes it's very hard to pick what exactly is the cause of what we are seeing, right? And I'll give you an example. Um, there has been a lot of factories that have shut down, but some of them have shut down because of COVID issues, which has affected demand, right? So they have shut down for economic issues. There are other factories that have shut down because of environmental regulations, right? So there's more requirement on reduction of coal, uh, following stricter environmental regulations. So there are factories that have shut down for that. And then, of course, there are factories that shut down because they just could not compete with the, with the competition. So there are a lot of factors that are affecting uh, the situation. Of course, I would say this year has actually been quite, it's been worse than last year in terms of uh, exports. And like I said, 
when COVID first broke out, the world faced a, a supply issue because it was mainly focused, it was mainly concentrated in this area. But when COVID spread to the world, then we faced a demand issue, right? And a demand issue actually is worse because it affects the entire it affects the entire world and affects all the companies. So I think this is one of the reasons that um, the, the economy has been struggling. Also, what most people don't know is that although China is a, a big producer and manufacturer in various sectors, it still depends on a lot of imports for inputs into those factories. So when the demand, overseas demand uh, collapsed, it was followed also by a supply shock from overseas because also overseas companies shut down there was a problem with logistics so because there was also a new supply shock overseas it affected the production here which in turn affects the exports so this is what i mean when you when i say there are a lot of things that are happening at the same time domestically and internationally you referred to to the supply chain issues, um, you know, during during different phases of the COVID crisis. Where is the supply chain crisis standing at the moment, and particularly as it relates to Africa? Yeah, the first thing I would say, you know, I never thought in my life of trading I would see the world run out of containers. You know, this is a situation that just, if you think about it, uh, theoretically, of course, there is a finite amount of containers, but throughout the globalization and the way world trade works, this is something that we, we, at least for myself, I'd never conceived could happen. And this is a big problem that is still ongoing. Of course, if you need a few containers, usually you can find them for a higher price. But if you need, you know, over 50 and you need them at the same time, then it becomes quite challenging. Um, that's the first thing. The second thing is I never imagined that, you know, the developed countries would be unable to clear their own cargo, right? When the cargo arrives, we've seen this outside the port of Long Beach and Los Angeles. And because those containers are stuck and there's a lot of exports going towards those countries, then that also affects the availability of containers, which affects other parts of the world. So on the one hand, we see how globalized the world is. But on the other hand, we see that globalization is very fragile. And sometimes it's very easy to assume that it, the trend is irreversible. But I think what has been clear this year is that the number of people, at least in international trade, the number of actors who control international trade, they're very few. Whether it's you know the big uh, shipping lines or the companies that control the containers, I think this year it has become very, uh, very, very clear. Well, let's spend a little time on this container issue because it has a big impact in, in Kenya and Nigeria and other port countries in Africa. So one of the big issues that you mentioned about the ports of Long Beach and Los Angeles, for example, where the backlog is most extreme. Back in October, uh, there was many of, as 80 ships uh, basically stacked up off the Pacific Ocean there, off the coast of Southern California. That's down to now about 46 boats that are now offshore, and they're all just waiting to get in. And the big problem, of course, is not just that they can't offload, but there's no trucks to take the containers. And then the containers, when they're taken, are not being backfilled with empty containers to go back to Asia to give people like you to ship stuff then to places like Mombasa. The problem for a trader in Mombasa now, as you alluded to, is the cost of shipping something has gone up 
twofold, threefold, fourfold in some cases, simply because there aren't enough containers because the big shipping lines are diverting those containers to the higher value markets in the US, Japan, and Europe, and away from lower value markets in the global south. So I guess my question to you is, how are you and your clients dealing with that when you have to ship something to, say, Zambia or Kenya or somewhere in Africa, and the cost of shipping has gone up considerably? How are you, how are you, you and your clients coping with this? First, I'll give you an example so that we can put things in context. Before, when we used to send containers to Durban, the price of a 20-foot container was around $1,000, even less. Today, for the same container to go to Durban is around $8,000. Who absorbs that cost? Is it the consumer? Is it the shipper? Is it you? Of course, it's the consumer because we are price takers. We cannot tell the logistics companies what to charge. So we pass, they pass the, the cost to us. We pass the cost to the importers. The importers pass the cost to the consumer. Okay, so this also impacts the demand, the global demand, right? Because the consumer now has to make a decision whether or not they'll purchase that. And what has happened is actually very simple. The goods that are worth more than the logistics are the only goods that are moving out. So even for the African clients, sometimes I remind them that yes, $8,000 to get to Durban, but we recently sent some containers to Brazil and that was around $16,000, right? So you can imagine an empty container, it costs $16,000. That means that the cargo you're going to put in that container must be in excess and it must be worth it to import this kind of product. So the, what, has, what has happened is that you know, now most of exports are higher value products. And this was in line with the general shifting of the Chinese economy anyway, because the trend was to move from low value to high value. So like I said in the introduction, there are a lot of things that are happening at the same time. Right? Nobody is gonna import a container for $16,000 of socks, right? Or if you're going to do that, then you need to be very sure that your client is gonna be able to absorb that cost. So the basic trend is that the people who are importing high value goods or they have no choice, they continue to import. The second option that is happening is that actually a lot of companies, they're now looking at closer sourcing hubs, right? So whether it's reshoring, to countries that are closer or buying locally. Uh, that, that is also another trend that we have seen. Of course, the problem is if the product is not available locally or it's not available in the region. Then in that case, sometimes the companies have shut down. We have seen quite a few clients shut down this year. You know, so, I mean, this is, this is the reality of the situation. Can you give us an idea of, of how African buyers are responding to this? What, which kind of products are they dumping and which ones are they, are they persevering with? Yeah, like I said, anything that is low value is a candidate to be scrapped. Any product that is high value will be continued to be imported if it's not available locally or regionally. A third option that is happening is that there are certain products that are sent in bulk. If the cargo is going to be sent in bulk as opposed to be sent inside a container, then those prices are, are reasonable. Another situation that is happening is that the air freight, if 
the product is not too heavy and can be sent by air, then that is also another situation that we have seen that is viable. Well, this seems like it might be a double-edged sword for Africa, because on the one hand, there's been a lot of complaints about the presence of so many low-cost Chinese imports that are displacing African producers and, and too much competition. This is the famous China price that everybody's complained about that for years has undercut local competitors. So here, these low-cost goods may cut down, so it will help African producers because it just doesn't make sense to ship socks, as you pointed out, or cheap electronics at $8,000 a container. That being said, the fact that consumers may end up paying more because no one has the scale or the volume that the Chinese have to produce things at the lowest cost possible. And so you may onshore or reshore on in places like Kenya, but because they can't manufacture at the volume that the Chinese can, the cost for consumers may go up. Either way, it looks like the consumer is going to be paying more for products, whether it comes from China and it's inflated because of the, the cost differential, or if it's produced locally, it will be more expensive. But at the end of the day, the consumer in Africa and around the world seems like they're going to pay more money. Is that, is that a fair assessment? Yes, it's a fair assessment. The consumers, uh, they, are the, they are at the end of the supply chain. So they have to bear that cost. But there's a situation where the consumer just forgets the product. And they forgo the product. If they forgo the product, then it's a problem for the importer. right? If the importer has already imported. And it's also a problem for the manufacturers if they cannot sell their goods. So actually, there's been a large uh, number of bankruptcies because, like I said, the demand has fallen. The consumer has received the new price and they're not, going, they're not willing to take it, or at least they can wait. They can wait until the situation changes. So it's not only the consumer that is paying the price, it is the entire uh, value chain. Do you foresee more, more manufacturing happening in Africa because, because of the shift? There are two things about that. Like I said, there are a lot of things that are happening at the same time. The issue of logistics is a situation that is not sustainable. It's not going to be like this forever. The shipping companies and the agents, they are in a hurry to get the containers back to China so that you can get more goods. Right. So eventually, when a lot of the world opens and also China opens, the prices of logistics will come back to the normal. So... If a certain country is going to be competitive in manufacturing, then they have a window, right? They have a window that before the logistic price falls, they need to make their profits in that window. Because when the logistics come back to normal, then the imported goods will be cheaper than they can manufacture, right? So there, there are two considerations to think about. If they're able to manufacture at a price that will be lower than the imported goods, thanks to this window, then of course there'll be manufacturing. But um, manufacturing takes time. And myself, I believe that this situation will be over late next year. Well, your mouth to God's ear, right? I mean, that's the hope late next year, assuming that everything kind of goes as planned. But 
Well, it would be amazing if it was over next year. But uh, listen, you, you said at the beginning of the show that what part of the world is doing well. Well, it turns out there are a couple places in the world that are actually doing well. Here in Vietnam, the World Bank is forecasting 4.8% growth this year. Not bad, all things being equal. Oil is at $73, $74 a barrel these days. So those Gulf countries and those oil exporting countries are doing okay on that. And it's not terrible. And I guess I'm, I'm curious about... Where is your phone ringing from? Who's calling you right now for orders? And what kinds of orders are they interested in? Is it coming from the Middle East? Is it coming from clients in Africa? And it, or is it coming from here in Southeast Asia? And what do they want from you? Well, these days it's uh, us calling more than being called. <laughs> <laughs> really? Tell us about that. Because, uh, like I said, when the logistic issue came, we had to develop our, our own strategy uh, as a company. You know, I'll tell you an anecdote that maybe your listeners and also you may find interesting. There's a factory in Tangshan in Hebei province, the steel capital of China. We used to buy steel billets from this factory in, in the 20, around 2012 to 2014, 2015. In 2014, China declared the war on pollution and there was a very clear policy of discouraging what was called the two highs and the one low, which is basically high energy consuming industry, high polluting industry, and low value add industry. Now, the production of steel billets is all three of those, right? So that factory shut down, and a lot of factories have shut down in, in, in Tangshan, and that was because of environmental regulations. The first conversion from using coal to natural gas a lot of companies could not invest in the capex so they just shut down well one factory they moved from that and they moved into crypto mining and when they started mining crypto they actually were doing quite well but then later that was also banned because of you know many reasons and one of them is high energy when you say crypto you mean cryptocurrency bitcoin kind of thing. yes okay so after that they had to shift to another industry and they shifted to importing uh, Australian products because now the Chinese middle class has grown quite large and you know they have demand for imported products, whether it's wine or these kind of products. So they were doing quite well. And you can imagine there's a company that was producing steel billets, now is selling you know Australian makeup and milk. But then, of course, there was the rivalry between China and Australia. So that business also tanked. <laughs> And the same company now they're focused on, you know, the green sector because now there's a lot of emphasis on the environment. There's a lot of interest on technology that will help, you know, generate cleaner energy and this kind of thing. So, you know, looking at this kind of company shift and change, we also have to take the same direction. So products that were low value especially for use in the construction sector, a lot of the factories have just closed. So it's not a matter of, uh, that's no longer an option. So we had to look at two things. We had to look at goods that are higher value. And because of the logistics, we had to look closer to China. And this is how we ended up, you know, focusing on Southeast Asia. So Philippines, Thailand and, and Vietnam. And what kind of goods are those? What kind of higher value products? Give us an idea of what. There are two kinds. And one is uh, light machinery, equipment that is used in mining and construction and manufacturing. These are highly encouraged products. 
So the factories, uh, these are the factories that will be last to close. These factories tend not to be polluting and they tend not to use a lot of, uh, it's not very polluting and the, the energy that they use is not as much as, you know, some of the other industries such as, uh, you know, steel making. So they are highly encouraged and the goods are worth, you know, the value of the goods is already high. And so, you know, some of these products have become quite competitive. Also, industrial chemicals have a value addition. You know, it's not a matter of just digging up some product or, you know, not adding value. So anything that has value add and is good for the environment, um, you know, it leaves actually, there's a lot of products that are, that are quite attractive if you, if you look in the right area. So w one of the things that, that was announced at FOCAC this year is more tariff-free access to, to Chinese markets for, for African goods. Um, so I realize that a lot of the discussion around this has, has focused on agricultural goods, which is the, not a field that you work in. But um, I was wondering kind of how affected are you, are, is, is your business by tariffs? And like what kind of, what kind of like tariff changes would you like to see? Well, we're exporting. So actually, from the export point of view, the tariffs would be from foreign countries, not from from China. There's a lot of a lot of kind of talk about about the the particular kind of logistics of hooking like exports from China to the African Continental Free Trade Agreement, and and with that, all of the all of these kind of like different tariffs in different African countries. So um, sorry for you know you know kind of like moving it slightly in that direction. You know kind of how how do do you foresee that all of these issues kind of affecting your work? I think the tariff issue and the the continental free trade area, these are focused more on exports towards China. And the idea, from what I gathered from the discussion at, at FOCAC, is that if they create a better connectivity between the African countries, then they'll be able to produce and meet the standards required for exports towards China. Right? So I think this is what was referred to as the green lanes. But again, it's more than just tariffs. It's also about non-tariff barriers. They are, especially when it comes to food, they are quite stringent regulations. So even if the price makes sense, and even if the tariffs are low, can the, you know, the phytosanitary standards be met? That's the biggest issue in terms of exporting from Africa to China. It's not a tariff issue. It's not a price issue. It's a matter of reaching the standards that are required. Yeah, that was the issue with the avocados in Kenya, which needed to be flash frozen according to Chinese import regulations. And Kenyan exporters simply didn't have that capacity and didn't invest in the flash freezers. So only one out of 100 were approved and actually got their avocados through. And so to your point, these are non-tariff barriers, which maybe the hopefully the Chinese will, will invest more in to help African producers and exporters to access the Chinese market. Very quickly, just want to talk to you a little bit about, again, the changes in the Kamal business over the years. I remember back, you know, a few years ago, seeing pictures of you on LinkedIn standing in front of lots of big heavy equipment. And a lot of this heavy equipment was being exported from China to African countries to help build the infrastructure from the standard gauge railway to the highways to the ports and all the things that have been built over the past 20 years. China now is getting out of a big chunk of that business, at least in the financing side. The construction companies 
are are still very active in in Africa, but they're not financing that kind of infrastructure anymore. Is that affecting the amount of exports from China in terms of the heavy equipment and all that machinery and the chemicals that were used to build this infrastructure? Are they sourcing more of it locally, or is that business more or less going away as China's backing away from this side of their engagement with Africa? There are two ways to look at that. One is as those projects decrease, then the sales from Chinese manufacturers to Chinese construction companies, of course, will decrease because the demand has decreased. But what has happened and actually what has helped us is the the Chinese construction companies overseas have relied on Chinese equipment. And throughout the process of them using the equipment in different countries, it has increased the brand reputation of the equipment. And also it has allowed the R&D to improve for those companies. So companies such as Sanyi and XCMG, the Sanyi and XCMG of today is not the same as the Sanyi and XCMG of 10 years ago, right? Because now the equipment has been subjected to different kind of terrains, different countries, different kind of transportation, uh, different requirements. So actually those projects were a way for the manufacturers to increase their global presence and their global brand. So from that side, it has actually helped a lot. And I, and I expect it to continue because 10 years ago, when we talked to customers about XCMG excavators, you know, there'll be a lot of hesitation. But now when we talk to the same customers about XCMG excavators, there's no need for us to really explain much because they've already seen them in action uh, locally. Interesting that they're building global brands. And those for you, of you who are not familiar with Sani, it's basically the Chinese equivalent to Caterpillar, that big heavy equipment, you know, the yellow the yellow trucks and machines that make all the roads and big heavy machinery. And so Sani is a very big player around the world in that. Kobus. Just pulling it back to Fokak, another big thing that was that was announced there is this RMB center, like a, tr- a cross-border um, RMB center for to promote um, trade in Chinese yuan. Um, like we, we've seen reports over the last few years that that attempts to to try and get direct yuan trade has not been very successful. Um, and I was wondering, you know, how what your perspective is on it. Like, is is that you know kind of how how big a part is that in your business, and what are some of the barriers to to, to mainstreaming that kind of trade yeah as you know most of the global trade is still conducted in uh, in dollars and then euros and like i said this year has really showed anyone who had any doubt that globalization is a very reversible process and one of the reasons is that the actors that control the globalization as defined in the specter of international trade there are very few actors and one of the most powerful actors in this trade is the SWIFT, the SWIFT system, right? So before the issue of internationalizing the renminbi, it was always there. But what has happened in the past two years is pushing, the, is pushing this process faster because people are realizing that, you know, there needs to be an alternative because if anything does happen, for example, to SWIFT, it will affect not only the Western countries, it will affect the whole world. So there is, there is an attempt to build uh, an alternative, but this will take time, right? Because part of the reason is the renminbi itself is not floating. So it's, it, it becomes harder to acquire this currency and the capital account is still not open. 
So, you know, they, right now we're still seeing the stage of a lot of um, experimentation, right? But there's more, there's more winds in the sails because now it's no longer just a matter of, uh, you know, simple trade. Now they, people have seen that there needs to be an alternative to the current system. And actually SWIFT has formed a, a JV with the local Chinese company to see how they can increase um, you know the internationalization of remi, uh, the renminbi in international trade so it will come it will not happen overnight but because it has been recognized that the current system is not going to be sustainable um, i expect it to happen you know in the next five to ten years we'll see things move very quickly in china right yeah. so in the next five to ten years um, it will happen an exa another example I can use is that, you know, 10 years ago to get renminbi in, in Kenya, for instance, uh, at the, you know, the standard bank or the local banks, it was quite difficult. But now, at, at least for smaller transaction, to get renminbi is quite straightforward process, right? So it's a, it's a matter of, you know, there's a lot of try and error on small scale and then increase, right? I think what is also interesting is the, the the introduction of the digital the digital UN, right? Because this this brings a, a stage that did not exist when Swift was created. So I'm very interested to see how this will work. I mean, it's been launched already domestically. We are waiting to see how it will work internationally, especially in trade. Yeah, and there's a think tank. Actually, it was, a, it was Hunan University, if I'm correct, and I have a li I'll put a link to it in the show notes, that is floating this idea of creating a digital currency union between a collection of African countries and using China's digital currency. It's called DCEP and, and, and DCEP. And, and it's a very interesting idea because what they're trying to do is to get away from the currency conversion issue that plagues so many traders such as yourself who have an African importer or exporter has to convert from their local currency to dollars, then dollars to renminbi, renminbi back to dollars, back to the local currency. And there's a lot of costs and inefficiencies in that. And by using a digital currency, you could presumably take all those costs out and make it more efficient. And it's interesting that this, this proposal to create a China-Africa currency union is very interesting. It probably is a long ways away, but I do like the idea that these ideas are bubbling up. Listen, it's coming to the end of the year. Our last question for you today before we let you go. It's the end of the year. Uh, the holidays are coming. You're going to hopefully take a break. And when you start next year, what is the one or two things that you think everybody should be looking at in terms of either the economy in China or China-Africa trade or, or your business? Give us a little bit of an outlook for 2022 and what you're going to be looking at. I think the first thing everybody is looking at is COVID, right? There's a new strain that came out new shutdowns right so everybody is on the lookout for whether there'll be a new strain you know will, it, will, will the current vaccines be able to counter the new strains so i think that's the that's the overarching theme for the whole world uh because uh, you know it, that it's caused a lot of it's caused a lot of issues um next year at the beginning um there is the winter olympics so the Winter Olympics in China, in terms of trade, in terms of the goods that are trading, in terms of the logistics, I expect that to, to also uh, be affected. Because whenever there is a big event, then, you know, there are more controls. So we, we, we wait 
to see um, what will happen. And then, you know, after the Olympics, I mean, yeah, after the Winter Olympics, we want to see what will happen overseas because we are demand, we, we rely on overseas demand. So if the, if the rest of the world keeps closed, then it just makes, it makes the business more difficult. But with, ha- with that said, um, we have invested a lot of resources and a lot of time trying to find the people who are, you know, where the price elasticity is not an issue. And, you know, there are certain factories that must produce. There are certain mines that must operate. And that's where we are focused on because we don't want to be uh, reliant on, you know, the global economy recovering. Walter Regu is the managing director of Kamal, which is a global procurement and strategic sourcing company, and he is based in Beijing. He's a longtime Beijing resident who follows these issues very closely. Walter, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us. We always love having you on the show and to hear your insights. Uh, I know you're active on LinkedIn and some social media platforms. If people want to connect with you, what's the best way they can find you? through our company website. Okay, that is KamalLimited.com. I will put a link to that on the show page, and there's a great easy contact us button right there, so you can reach out to Walter directly from the website. Walter, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, and we're looking forward to speaking with you in 2022, and we hope that your business thrives next year. Thank you for having me. You both have a good day. Kobus, we've been speaking to Walter for a number of years now, and every single time he never disappoints, and he gives me these ideas that just blow my mind. And the one point that I thought was so interesting, think about this, $8,000 a container. That's an enormous cost. And, And you have to pity the poor consumer. All around the world, this is the case. I mean, we're seeing serious inflation in the United States, but we've been tracking the inflation pressures in Africa on our website and in our daily coverage for much longer than the pressures have been going in the United States because this problem we started detecting back in April and May that there were container problems because they were diverting containers away from Africa into the European, US, and Japanese markets long before the backlogs even started off the coast of California. And so now it really feels like there's going to be a moment of truth for a lot of people in Africa who have been complaining passionately about the presence of low-cost Chinese imports. And from what Walter's telling us, that at $8,000 a container, it's very likely that a lot of those imports are going to dry up. So the key question now is, will anything be there to replace them? This is the opportunity to build the manufacturing capacity, especially at the low end, to offset the, the decrease in low-cost imports from China. This is a moment of truth, and I think it's going to happen in 2022, or it won't happen in 2022, but this is the moment of opportunity. Yeah, I mean, it'll be very interesting to see how African economies respond to this, um, whether we'll see a kind of a, a bounce back on some of, some of these sectors, like the garment sector particularly, that have, that have been under a lot of pressure because of cheap Chinese import, imports. Um, what we're seeing in South Africa at the moment is is a, a very kind of like rapid development in in the kind of more high-end fashion kind of world you know um suddenly there's like south african jeans brands there's there's lots of there's lots of kind of like south african brands kind of establishing themselves over the last while um and it'll be interesting to see you know kind of how they pivot as well because i think a lot of them have 
have just assumed that that the that Chinese imports have essentially killed the lower the lower value garment market in 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 Africa. And that, as as Walter pointed out, that might not be true anymore. You know, kind of. So it'll be interesting to see whether all of these garment sectors that people have been complaining about being kind of gutted by Chinese imports, whether it's possible to restore some of them. You know, and um, it's and and in that case, you know, the mo- I guess the most optimistic view of this would be that in some kind of ways the pressure on consumers would be slightly relieved by the, by uh, an increase in, in manufacturing jobs if that happens, if if that gets off the ground. I think it's it's. A different situation in South Africa where there's where there's more of a developed uh, manufacturing base than many other African countries. Absolutely. And there's this other issue that's out there. And just like we talked about the non-tariff barriers being one of the problems, there's these other barriers that might make it difficult for African producers to fill the void from the Chinese. I want to bring you an example of Anthony Mutungu. And Anthony Mutungu, he started up a USB cable company in Kenya. And he was profiled back in August by Business Daily, the the financial newspaper there in Kenya. And one of the things that he found was that starting up your own business to replace a product that used to be imported from China is not as easy as it sounds. Now, on paper, when we have these these academic discussions about, well, local manufacturers should just replace Chinese products or imported products, that sounds great. But what he complained about was the regulatory burdens that he had to get to go through all of the permits and the approvals. He also said that a lot of his customers looked at the locally made products and said, we want the Chinese imported because we don't trust the locally made products. Interesting. And then within two or three months of him starting up his business, which he said he built really high quality products, he was met with counterfeits of his product in the local market that just undermined and were were cheaper than him, finding it very, very difficult to compete. The last problem that he faced was that he had a number of inputs to build his USB cables, but he was missing two or three things that couldn't be sourced locally and that had to be brought in from China and India. Now, at $8,000 a container, will those last one or two pieces make it into the market? So we have all of these other complicating factors which are going to have to be ironed out. And this, again, goes back to what we were talking about in terms of the AFCFTA, the African Continental Free Trade Area, whether or not they can build some, some complementarities in the, in, you know, across the continent. So rather than bringing something in from India or China, it can be brought in from South Africa. It can be brought in from Egypt, duty-free. There's a lot of pressure to move, I think, much faster than people had anticipated for the AFCFTA. But this is the moment so that a guy like Anthony Mutungu can really succeed without as many headwinds as he's been facing. I think a lot of this is going to become direct challenges to the power of the state in Africa, because I think, you know, Africa frequently, and, I th- and we see this a lot with uh, with border issues and customs and so on, is that African states are this like, kind of toxic combination of being both very interventionist, you know, so, so they always they frequently want a hand in everything, um, and very inefficient at the same time. Um, and, you know, so, so that thing, that, that is a really kind of horrible combination if, if you're trying to, to boost intra, intracontinental trade, because you, then you have like officials on all sides, you know, kind of like muscling in on, on a lot of, on a lot of this work. And at the same time, you know, kind of all kinds of bottlenecks kind of developing at, particularly at borders. Um, so it'll be, you know, I, th- I think I think the that work to kind of smooth these things have uh, were, you know, the, I think the good news is that 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 all of that work 
is spearheaded from the African side. You know, kind of so. So it's all it's the 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 free trade agreement is an African initiative, and you know, and African governments are signatories to it, and they're moving all in the, all in that direction, albeit slowly. But I think it'll be interesting to see whether the the kind of current crisis adds a little bit of heat under them. You know, kind of, and, and whether we'll we'll see you know a little bit more prag- pragmatic, like a more pragmatic approach to some of these issues. Okay, well, let's uh, we'll keep an eye on that. We're keeping an eye on all of the post-FOCAC analysis. We've been doing quite a bit in the newsletter and on the website. It'll go on for probably another, I'd say, two or three weeks. And and some of it's really good and some of it's terrible. We're identifying the bad and also really showcasing the good. So go to the website, ChinaAfricaProject.com, if you want to start sifting through all the different uh, takes on it. We're putting bad takes and good takes. It's really kind of interesting. Also, we want to welcome all of our readers at Harvard University, anywhere on the Harvard Secure Network. You can access the China Africa Project and you can sign up for the newsletter. So that's fantastic. And of course, if you would like to access the website and get all the analysis that Cliff Imboy is doing, that Cobus is doing, that I'm doing, and that other contributors of ours are doing every single day, uh, go to ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. Subscriptions start at just $7 a month for students and teachers and $15 for everyone else. We really appreciate all of your support and all of our Patreon supporters. Just heartfelt thanks at the end of the year. We had a fantastic get-together last week. That was a lot of fun, Cobus, getting together with everybody on the Patreon. And we just, you know, we weren't sure what was going to happen. And then all of a sudden, people just started showing up, and it was fantastic. And and we just had this great hour-long conversation about FOCAC, and, and in a much more just casual, fun way. And God bless our listener in North Carolina who got up at five in the morning to do this. That is loyalty, Cobus. That is loyal. I, I mean, wow, five in the morning to join us. So thank you. We really appreciate it. Uh, so thank you to all of you for listening. And we really were, we're expressing a lot more gratitude towards the end of the year. It's that time of year. We have a couple more shows planned before the holidays. And then we're going to take a hopefully a two-week break, more likely a one-week break, and we're going to have our end-of-year show. And then we've got our first show of 2022 already scheduled for January 5th. So we're going to be kicking off the new year in grand style. But for that, for now, we'll just leave it there. I'm Eric Olander for Kobus Fenstaden. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you again next time. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. For more information about the China Africa Project, go to chinaafricaproject.com.